Lord Jesus, your word says that when you were on the cross, you despised its shame and looked ahead to the joy that was set before you. And that joy was saving sinners. That joy was taking people who ignored you, did not believe in you, hated you, and making them sons and daughters. And what a blessing it is, Lord, to see Emma, who was born into this church family, now helping all of us worship you through music. Thank you. We love you. Amen. Whew. Give me a second here. Emma was two when, when I met her. She's 15 now, and, and to see a 15-year-old young lady with uh, obvious gifts provided by God using them to help the church she grew up in, she was born into, just having a dad moment. Just a second. Speaking of families, we have a family rule, and, and that is simply this. We don't want, I've, I'm, I'm the father of two sons, and their standard issue, straight ahead, charge first, think later, boys. So one of our, we have a, a, lot of, a lot of sayings in our home. Some are biblical and straight out of the Bible. Some try to reflect the wisdom of Scripture, and one of them is that we never want our family name to be a verb. You don't ever want to give people cause to say, well, that guy garnered hard. You know, don't, uh, don't garner. Sometimes family names become watchwords for ignorance, as a dear friend of mine says. Some of us live our lives as examples, and others of us live our lives as warnings to others. I've been both. Don't do what Bruce did. Don't say what Bruce said. It's the worst when it happens with another group of couples. Have you done this, guys? You say something and you can see all the wives and even some of the husbands going, oh, that won't end well. So you can be an example or you can be a warning. And as we read, honestly, the accounts of the life of Jesus, one of the surprising things about it is that many times His disciples do exactly what He told them to do, and life still becomes exceedingly difficult, seemingly on purpose. And one of the, one of the truths that we've tried to share here at Crosspoint for many, many years, long before I arrived, is that this, is, this Bible is God's supernatural, historically reliable, verifiable Word to us, and it is not a simple formulaic book where you do certain things and always have certain good outcomes. That's one way of looking at the Bible. It's just not faithful to the way God works and the way He deals with people inside the pages of Scripture themselves. We've been in this series in Luke, showing Jesus and the people around Him in all kinds of trouble and watching Jesus to see how He deals with trouble. And in Luke chapter 9, the disciples are, they're going to go through a roller coaster experience with Jesus. 
If you can see it from their eyes, and I'll try to help you see it from their perspective as best I can, but if you can stand in the dirt there with them and watch Jesus do what He does and say what He says and send them where He does, you might empathize, if you can put yourself in the story, you might empathize with their experience, and it has valuable things to teach us. And this particular miracle story, very familiar probably to many of you, is so important, it's found in all four Gospels. We have four accounts of the life of Christ. Aside from His resurrection, I believe this is the only one that appears in all four. It's vitally important, and it begins in Luke 9. If you'll open your Bibles there, please. Luke chapter 9. And when we come to this part in Luke's gospel, you can now see how deliberate Jesus is being in handing off the ministry to His disciples. They've been with Him. They've watched Him work. They've watched Him preach. They've watched Him heal disease. They've watched Him wield the power of God over nature and calm storms, literally. Not just metaphorically, they've watched Him speak to winds and waves as if they belonged to Him and watched immediate calm come because Jesus spoke and rebuked nature. They've watched Him deal with every kind of terrible affliction, including demon possession, and own every moment. Now He's going to do something quite different. He's going to send them to do the same thing, and He is not going with them. Luke 9 verse 1. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Well, this is where we have to start beginning to imagine what it must have been for them. Many of you know, what is the most common profession or vocation among these twelve? Fishermen. You've got a group of fishermen, you've got a tax collector who has sold his soul to the Roman Empire to collect taxes for the conquerors, keep more than his share to enrich himself. You've got another guy named Simon who you and I would call a freedom fighter. In other words, he would have hated the oppressors. He would have been apparently committed, if we don't know about Simon specifically, but the kind of people he ran with were committed to revolutionary violence. It's a motley crew. You've got simple commercial fishermen, one guy that betrayed his people, another people who's willing to die for them. You've just got a group of guys, in other words. They're ordinary people, and if you look carefully at what this says, Jesus now gives them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. The king is on earth. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Everything has changed because God has kept His promises. The king is now on earth, and He is proving it and showing the nature of the kingdom by dealing with everything that afflicts His creation. And it's one thing to watch Jesus do that. It's quite another if you're just a dude to go out there and do this stuff yourself. Can you begin to understand that? It's one thing to sit in the stands and watch the pros go at it, to be invited onto the field. Wow, they weren't expecting this. It's very likely that all of these guys were rabbinical school washouts. They hit their ceiling earlier in life, and whether they or their families or however it worked, they were put on the spiritual slow track. They're not going to be like their rabbis. They're not going to be like their teachers. 
And now they're doing something that no rabbi does. They're wielding the power of God in the name of Jesus, and then Jesus makes it really interesting. Has Jesus ever made life interesting for you? For you've done as best you can with a clear conscience, not perfect. None of us are perfect. If you're new to our church, you're in a congregation of sinners, beginning with the pastor. That's what we are. Saints alone by God's grace. Set apart new people on the inside that are becoming on the outside what God already declared true by the gospel. That's us. But if you're expecting perfection, you might as well stay because it's not in the church down the road either. We're all a mess, okay? (laughs) Don't go looking. It won't get much better anywhere else. And anybody who tells you they've arrived has just given evidence that they're very far from arriving. These are just guys. And Jesus makes it very difficult for them. Look. He said to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Wait, what? You don't even go to Temecula under those conditions. (laughs) Temecula's pretty far out there, right? He forbids them everything. No staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, not even a change of clothes. Don't take anything with you. This has never been said before. I can find no evidence that was ever repeated again. Paul himself later is going to be a tent maker. Jesus himself has been receiving support from people who believed in his ministry. But to these guys, on their first outing, Without Jesus, he says, don't take anything, just go. Do you like the conditions so far? It gets worse. Whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. You understand what that means? You're going into all these villages. Where are they going to stay? Wherever they are welcomed. Motel 6 is not going to leave the light on for them. They are going to depend literally on the kindness of strangers to welcome them into a home, and Jesus says, don't hop from house to house. Wherever they welcome you, you stay there until the work is done, and once the work is done, then you leave. You stay with that family as long as necessary. How do you like those conditions? Benjamin Franklin had a saying, I believe, I can't remember if it was three or four days, but he said, company begins, company and fish are alike, they stink after three days. (laughs) Have you had that experience? (laughs) When my wife and I were a young couple, we ended up in one of these, you got to be kidding me, social situations where we welcomed an older couple into our home that we didn't know, they were friends of friends. And they were going to stay, move from them staying in the area to them staying in our little apartment. And as I'm helping this older guy get an astonishing amount of luggage out of his car and into my house, I thought, how, how, do I, how can I ask this politely? I said, how long are you able to stay with us? <laughs> it's pretty good, right? So much nicer than when are you leaving, Right? I've been on the other side of this, too. I've had family put my luggage in the car and start the engine while we're still talking. (laughs) So I understand it from both sides. But he said, oh, you know, wife and I are retired. We love this area. We're in no hurry. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, first century hospitality is different. 
It's far more welcoming. The code of hospitality is far more rigid than ours. But this is still an awkward situation. Because what's the reciprocity in this arrangement? What can the disciples offer to their host, physically speaking? Nothing. You don't have any clothes? No. Bag? No. Bread? No. Money? I got nothing. I got me and the good news of the kingdom. That's it. And then it says, Whatever, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them, because the kingdom is drawn near. If people want nothing to do with it, you ceremonially let them know this is on you. God has come close, and you don't want him. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. How's the mission going? Pretty well. Then Luke moves the scene to the palace. And like the masterful writer he is, this is the inspired Word of God. This is what God wanted you to know through Luke, but he worked, humanly speaking, through a brilliant writer. And he moves the scene to the palace, to the palace of a wicked man. It says, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Here's, how, here's what a wicked man Herod was. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And Luke's going to leave that on the back burner to show you something later. But that's not where the action is right now. The action is with these disciples. On their return, the apostles, and that literally means, if you want to make a note of it in your Bible, apostle literally means someone who is sent. Okay? This is an elite group from Jesus, near Jesus, eyewitnesses to his life, sent on his behalf. On their return, these sent men, these apostles, told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Jesus is now debriefing and they're decompressing. Because what must it have been like for ordinary men to meet demon-possessed men and command them and watch spirits come out? You're a fisherman, you didn't sign up for this, right? It never once in your life occurred to you that maybe someday you would be an exorcist or that you would preach with the same authority that Jesus did that brought the kingdom of God close so that people could make up their minds about God keeping His promises. They've done it all, and they come back and they tell Jesus all about it. So maybe your company has an after-action report or some kind of debrief where you talk about what went right and what went wrong. Nothing went wrong. This was a home run. It was a tremendous success except for this. Luke's storytelling is very brief. It's very lean. But you can imagine how exhausted they were. Being in these conditions, never a moment of ease. Staying with strangers and leaving that house to battle disease and sin and death in the lives of the people all around them who as soon as this word spreads, guess what? They're coming. You don't have to look at your schedule. They're coming to you. Mark's account of this same story says the pace was so frantic that they didn't even have time to eat. You ever worked so hard that you couldn't eat? Not very often for me. 
I can find five minutes, believe me. That protein bar is your friend, okay? A piece of bread will keep you going. Jesus takes the disciples aside. He tries to take them to a desolate place and then the crowds. When the crowds learned it, they followed Him. Here's some bad news if you're a worn-out disciple. And He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. You imagine there are Emotions? For one thing, they're like kids who are very excited to tell dad how well they did. They don't have a full chance because the crowds come. They don't have rest. And I know this because of verse 12. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Now, my question to you, is that a reasonable thing that the disciples have suggested? Absolutely. As Luke is going to tell you in a few minutes, some of you already know this, this isn't just a small gathering. This is 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. This is 15,000 people who didn't plan to be there. They saw Jesus. They came running. Any diabetics, do you think, in the crowd in the first century? Anyone with low blood sugar? Anyone with precious three-year-olds? It's a mess. It's 15,000 people, some with diseases, all eager to hear, all eager to get close, and Jesus welcomes them and teaches them so long that the day, Paul and Luke says, wears away. It starts getting late. And they say politely, hey, this has been great. We love you. You're so good at this. But don't you think it's time for the invitation? Can we sing one more song and send them away, because that kid, he hasn't stopped screaming for the last 40 minutes. We've got an old lady passed out in the back. This isn't safe. That's what we're saying. You're amazing, but this isn't safe. They need lodging. They need food. You need to send them home. And Jesus, as Jesus is prone to do, makes it harder. He said to them, you give them something to eat. Now, this is a Bible story, and if you read this as mere entertainment or a fiction, you'll miss the point. Jesus makes it very, very difficult sometimes to serve Him. Have you noticed? They're doing everything right. They're not out on their own mission. They're under His command, under His authority. They're doing everything He tells them to do, and this still is very, very difficult. I'm not talking about you launching out on your own and suffering the understandable consequences. That's predictable. God has set things in order in the universe, and God Himself personally deals with foolishness to make sin and foolishness so painful that you come back to Him. But I'm not talking about that. 
One of my very favorite Proverbs says, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. In other words, people behave like fools, and then when life comes crashing in, they're mad at God. Not talking about that. I'm talking about doing everything that Jesus said and doing it well, so much so that it was successful and it was blessed, and it's still very hard, and He still puts you in an impossible position. In this story, the reasonable people are the disciples. Is Jesus being reasonable in telling 12 guys to feed 5,000 men plus the women and the kids? Why don't they have anything to offer them? Remember, He said, you can't have any bread for yourself. Now you've got this massive crowd, and He says, oh, it's late. You're right. They should be tired. They must be hungry. You feed them. Come on. Can you envision 15,000 people? If we put 15,000 people on this campus, there's five acres here, what do you think that would look like? We'd be overwhelmed. The fire department would rightfully come along and say, slowly, calmly, everybody leave. Get out. And pastor, we want to talk to you for just a second. What are you doing? It's not a good situation. And they know it's not good. I hear the pushback, the frustration, the impatience in their voice. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Luke doesn't tell you where they got them. Another account does. A boy has that. And listen to the sarcasm. There's a little pushback here. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. Why can't they buy food for all these people? Jesus wouldn't let them have any money. And what they're trying to do is get him to wake up to reality. Have you ever talked to God about how it really is? (laughs) And here's the dominant question. Why does Jesus make it so difficult to serve him? Because this is on purpose. He set the conditions. They're doing everything right, and it is still exceedingly difficult. For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Hey, how long did that take? (laughs) Twelve guys fanning out among 15 to 20,000 saying, everybody sit down. No, not that many. No, not few. Groups of 50, please. You've got to be kidding me. What are we doing? Here's the payoff. And they did so. And he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them, notice, gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Why does Jesus make it so difficult to serve Him? You need to know the answer to that, bio, to that real life question, or you might be tempted to stop serving Him. Because the formulaic false proposition that is being given in many churches is this you do things for Jesus, and life will get easier. And it won't. It'll get better, but it won't get easier. 
It can be exceedingly good. It can be eternally good. It can be life-savingly good and be very, very hard. That's what the disciples are discovering. Why? This. Here's the reason. Jesus makes it tough to serve Him to teach us this valuable lesson. He is the one that provides. And He has drawn all of this out to gather that little boy's lunch and to say a blessing over it, looking up to heaven first. This is very deliberate, and Luke wants you to see it. He wants you to see Jesus taking that little bit of food, smiling down on it, and thinking to himself, more than enough. Why? Because he is the Son of God. And they watch him. The people in the back can't even see this. This is 15,000 people. They don't have big video screens. There's not some camera crew kneeling down and giving the upshot so that people can see the food and see Jesus looking up to heaven. The disciples are in a unique position to see how little they had, but then they give it to Jesus. He says a blessing over them, and he starts breaking this food into manageable portions, and the disciples keep coming back and back and back. Look at verse 16. He broke the loaves and gave them to who? To the disciples to set before the crowd. How long did it take 12 men going back and forth to Jesus? And every single time in dozens of trip per man, per man, they would look down and think to themselves, there's more. I can't believe it. Where's he getting this? How is this happening? He has more now than we gave him to start with. We fed a thousand people and he always has more. Why? Because the tough lesson is that Jesus provides. Why do I call it a tough lesson? Because deep in my heart, when the challenges are new and real, I don't believe it. I think it's up to me. Jesus provides, but one of the realities of living in this life is this. Previous successes are often forgotten when we face new challenges. What have these men watched Jesus do? Everything. Anything. They've watched him be exhausted enough to fall asleep in a boat, get caught in a storm that he continues to sleep through. They wake him up screaming, saying, we're going to die here. He wakes up and like a father to a puppy says, stop. And there's calm. They forgot. They've seen him deal with demon-possessed men. In fact, one so demon-possessed, he called himself legion and said, there are many of us here. And before it was over, Jesus, in short order, had him, Luke says, clothed and in his right mind, healed, whole. What happened? In the new challenge, in the new crisis, they forgot who Jesus was and what he could do, and that is chronically the trouble with those of us who are his disciples. We enter a new season of life. We're presented with a new heartbreaking reality. There is a new problem before us, and that fear of insufficiency makes us forget who Jesus is and put our eyes on ourselves and think that it's all about us, and we forget that He is the one who provides. In fact, this is the heart of the story. Here's how it works if you're a disciple of Jesus. He supplies, we serve. If you get that backwards, you'll ruin your life. See, here's why, and we've, we've 
tried hard as best we can with only moderate success so far to convince every disciple at Crosspoint that Jesus has work for you to do. And it may never be on this stage. In fact, for most of you, it won't be. There's only so many people who fit up here. It's a small stage. And this is only a few hours of our life together as a church family. But if you know Jesus, in other words, if you believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave to give you eternal life and wrote your name down in heaven so that you are now no longer just his creation, you are his specially redeemed child, he has work for you to do at home in your marriage, at home with your children, in the singleness that you find yourself in, whether you're enjoying it or not, in your old age, in your retirement, in the beginning of your career with all of those pressures and the kids who won't sleep and you're sleep deprived chronically, in all seasons of life, if Jesus has your, you as his disciple still on earth, he has work for you to do and too many people don't engage that work because they look at the little bit they have and they say, I can't do it. And you know what Jesus would say? You're right. You're not the point. You can't do it. I can. Get in line. He'll supply. You'll serve. You'll serve with His strength. You'll serve under His direction. The little bit that you have will be enough. The little you have can accomplish His will if only you will put it in His hands. That's why he had them gather up the little bit of food. He wanted them conscious of how little they started with, and then he wanted to watch them work their way through the crowd. Perhaps this took two hours. And at the end, he says, let's pick up everything that's left. We won't litter. Pick up everything that remains. Did you notice how much was left? Twelve baskets. What's the point? one per man. And the fishermen stood there beside each other saying, I have more in my hands as a leftover than we started with, and so does every man with me. If churches could take their eyes off the stage and understand that the stage, the pulpit, is a vital part of God's plan, but it's only a small part of God's plan. And if every disciple of Jesus would honestly do business with Him and say, I don't have much, Lord, but You have work for me to do. And the difficulty of the work You're calling me to do, in fact, the impossibility of what You're calling me to do is not going to affect whether I step out in faith and do what You tell me to do. That's the magic. What happens instead? People look at their small resources and say to themselves, it will never be enough. And I think Jesus would say, then and now, you're right, it's not enough. Give it to me and watch what I do. And then at the end, as a great British preacher said a generation ago, then your work will be a miracle. Not because 
you're incredible, but because he's incredible. And you'll remember how little you knew of him, how fearful you were to disciple your children, how afraid you were to begin to share your faith, how incapable you felt of serving children at something like Vacation Bible School. But you showed up and you said, Jesus, warts and all, mess as I am, little as I am, here I am. And in, your, in His hands, the little you have can accomplish His will. In fact, the little you have and the little you are can feed a multitude. That's what He's always been doing, and that's why He makes it hard on purpose. So that you'll learn it's not up to your intelligence, it's not up to your money, it's not up to your patience, it's up to Him to supply all of those things according to His matchless provision as the one and only Son of God. And then in the middle of all that, you'll discover things and see things that you've never seen before. You'll learn things about yourself and things about Him, and you'll see miraculous change in the little world that He's placed you in, but it all starts when you put yourself in His hands, trusting that He will provide. And you have work to do. It happened just this week. Two or three people, just people like me, ordinary people. I saw them trust God in extraordinarily difficult circumstances, and I saw this week God do things that only God can do, and it all started with someone that trusted Jesus enough for Him to supply and them simply to serve. So, I don't know what you're going through. There's no way I could possibly know everyone's story. And half the people that tell me their stories are only telling me the best parts anyway. That's just human nature. But Jesus, who knows everything and who loves you enough to have died on the sins, on the cross for your sins, and endured God's just wrath in your place, His invitation to you is, trust me, give it all to me. Don't worry about the supply. I'll take care of that. You serve and watch me provide. Let's pray together. If it's been a little while, Christian, if you've just been on autopilot or worse, you know that Jesus has been dealing with you about certain things and you've just been putting him off and off and off. You want to share your faith. You so badly want someone in your family to trust Christ, but you've been waiting to learn more. You've been waiting to know how to answer all the questions they might throw at you. Dad, you're at home with kids under your care, and you dare not correct them sometimes because you feel like a hypocrite already. God's placed a ministry, might be known to the church, it might just be your act of service to God, but God's put something on your heart, and you've been holding back because you look at yourself and you say, I, I, I can't do it, I'm not enough, I'm not smart enough, I don't have the time, I don't have the money. What if you just trusted Jesus instead and started moving? What if you just placed yourself in His hands, thinking it'll make no difference, and watched Him call God's blessing down on you and start working? What if those grandkids were reconciled to Jesus? What if those little kids were grown soon, as Emma is growing? And you marvel that they are turning into better Christians than you ever thought about being. What if you fought for all of that in prayer? 
What if from the little money you have, you started giving generously with fear and trepidation and you watch Jesus begin to supply and provide? Those are just a few examples. I can't begin to imagine all the things that Jesus is wanting to do and calling people to do. Whatever it is, I can tell, I'm telling you on the authority of Scripture, this story repeated four times, you can trust Him to provide. Talk to Him about it. Lord Jesus, too many times I've found myself in the position of the disciples, looking at myself, resources that you've placed in my hands saying it'll never be enough. And every time I've trusted you, you've done exactly what you did in this story. You showed up and you provided, you supplied. Lord, there are souls that will be saved, families that will be raised, character that will be transformed, old terrible habits that will be broken. If only your children, if only the people you saved will trust you now. Give us the grace to do that. Give us the grace to trust you. Put ourselves in your hands and get started. And this offering is part of that. It's just one expression of our trust in you. We collectively take from what you have supplied. We give a generous portion of everything you gave. We give a portion of it back. And from it, it is enough. Lord, bless, encourage, teach, and do what you do, Jesus. Provide as we trust you. In, his, in your name I pray. Amen.